He told them this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the, field, in the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was received back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, please pray with me. Father, thank you uh, for these stories um, that you give us. We pray that you would help us to make sense of it, um, help us to see ourselves in it, and help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, as we talk about this parable tonight, there is so much that we can say about this parable. Um, and we're not going to do that. We're just going to take one thread through this parable. And I want us to look through it through the lens of joy and happiness. Now, joy is a word that we don't really understand. We don't talk about a lot as a culture. Um, we, we prefer to talk about happiness. And a quick Google search showed me that um, there are lots of articles on happiness. Um, Lifehacker has a whole section devoted to this, Psychology Today, Forbes, New York Times, all filled with the tips and insights that we need, the hacks that we need to live um, our happiest life. Um, but when I searched for joy, very little came up, um, mostly mostly Christian websites, very little um, talking about joy. But the prevailing wisdom out there is that happiness is something that you need to figure out for yourself. And like so much of our choose-your-own-identity, choose-your-own-adventure culture, happiness is just one more thing that's up to you to figure out. I was reminded of this scene in, um, in The Office. In the, the seventh season, there's this episode where Daryl and Andy and Kevin form a band together. 
um, and they're practicing in the warehouse. Maybe you've seen this. And Daryl, who works in the warehouse, if, you, if you're not familiar with the office, I'll fill you in. Um, Daryl works in the warehouse, and he's teaching Andy, who went to Cornell. He's teaching Andy how to write songs. And um, Andy can't really figure out how to write songs, and so he says, um, he's sitting at his keyboard, and he asks Andy, what is something that you really care about? And Andy says, reverse snobbery. Um, and Daryl says, how about something a little more universal? And uh, he, Andy says, sometimes I feel like life has passed me by. And then Daryl starts playing some chords, and he starts singing, I couldn't get out of bed today. I wish the alarm clock would go away. And Andy's just amazed. Did you just come up with that? That's incredible. And then Andy adds a verse. He says, which me am I going to be today? I got a closet full of me's. Am I going to be the happy me? And then Kevin adds, or the me that stinks? Um, yep, I love, I love this, right? Because this reveals the way that we think about happiness. Andy's line, I've got a closet full of me's. Which me am I going to be today? Am I going to be the happy me? Um, happiness is just one more thing that you add to your identity. It's just one more thing that you can choose to be true about you. And Kevin's line is so revealing, or are you going to be the me that stinks, reveals that even when we think that we can choose the me that we're going to be today, so often we fail at this, right? Even in our best intentions, we fail, and then the interpretation of others, um, they don't like being around us. Um, And this is how the world teaches us to think about our own happiness. Cheryl Crow, who was a musician in the 90s, wrote this song, um, If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? And there's something about this line of thought that we're told. Pursue your dreams. Do whatever makes you happy. Choose your bliss. I've got a closet full of me's. Am I going to be the happy me? And while we've heard these things and we we rehearse them to ourselves and we rehearse them to each other, they ultimately fall flat for us. I mean, think about the way we talk to ourselves about happiness. How do you talk to yourself about happiness? If I get those grades, then I'll be happy. If I get that outfit or that gadget, then I'll be happy. If I got that internship, um, then I'd be happy. If I was dating that guy or that girl or any guy or any girl, then I'd be happy. Or the inverse. Sometimes we do the inverse. We just say, just screw it. I'm just going to do what I want, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and then I'll be happy. And in all of our efforts towards our own happiness, they often end up like that line from Sheryl Crow. If it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? Um, C.S. Lewis addresses in one of his essays. Um, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis was a, a children's book writer and an um, English professor in England. And this is what he says. Um, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And it seems that his point is that asking the question about happiness is entirely the wrong question. That rather than asking questions about making you happy, um, we should instead be asking the deeper question. What about joy? What is joy? How do I get joy? So my hope is that as we look at this parable together, we might see how Jesus diagnoses our feeble attempts at finding happiness. And in their place, he offers us real joy. And he says that the joy that we long for is actually found in him and in his father. So my outline for tonight, it's on the back of your bulletin. Um, First is where do we look for happiness? And then the second point is how do we get joy? 
So first, where do we look for happiness? So looking at the parable, Jesus says this. He says, there's a man who has two sons. And with each of these sons, he gives us a picture of how we look for happiness. So first, we've got the younger son. The younger son goes to his dad. He asks his dad for his inheritance, um, which is basically telling his dad, uh, I want you dead so that I can have the money that's coming to me. The dad consents. He divides his property. He gives, um, he gives this, the part that goes to his younger son, and his younger son leaves. And this would have been a deeply shameful act in the first century Palestine. So how do we know this? Well, first, um, dividing the property between his sons. Uh, The word here for property is this Greek word for life, meaning that he actually divided his life, uh, meaning that his son was saying loud and clear to his dad, I want your money. I don't care about you at all. And this is shameful because agricultural work in the ancient Near East was highly valued and abandoning it for anything would have brought great shame to his family. Um, it brought a loss of respect from everyone in the village. And third, in the ancient Near East, failing to care for your parents was condemned. Even to the point where in some places the neglect of parents was an imprisonable offense. So doing what this son did, taking his inheritance, running off, was a crime that actually entitled the father to disown his son. And along with that, the entire village was permitted to shun this boy so he could never return. Now, regardless of all of these um, shaming things, the son takes off. He takes his dad's money, and he tries to figure out life on his own. And the younger son in the parable represents those who think that happiness lies along the lines of self-discovery. And so we're told this boy, he goes out, um, he squanders his money, he runs out of money, and then famine strikes. And then he is um, in this place where he's thinking of his father's servants at home and the fact that they have extra bread, how they're better off than he is. And he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to return home. He's going to bear the shame of entering into his town, return home and plead with his dad. Just just make me the lowest of your servants. I'll work off my debt, knowing that he might never in his lifetime work off his debt. But knowing that being near his dad, who he knows is a good man, is far better than being where he is on his own. So he returns home, finds the father waiting, and then there's this beautiful conspiracy of love where a father runs towards him and embraces him and brings him in and gives him these symbolic clothing of sonship and honor. And then he throws him this party and exclaims, my son who is lost is now found. My son who is dead is now alive. And then they celebrate. And then we're introduced to the older brother. And while the younger brother was off finding himself, we learned that the older brother stayed back in the fields. The younger brother comes home, the party starts, and then the older brother hears the music and he calls a servant over and he says, hey, what's going on over here? And then the servant tells him, hey, your, your brother's come home, your dad is celebrating. And then we see the older brother's furious. He's livid. He said, this guy, this, guy, this kid, this kid tells dad that he wishes dad was dead, takes his money, Shames the family, runs off, squanders his money, and then dad throws him a party. And the older brother is so angry. You can imagine he'd be angry, right? He's so angry because he's been doing everything right his whole life, and his dad has never once thrown him a party. He's thrown all of his energy into measuring up to some standard of obedience, and he feels ignored and slighted. Then the parable ends with the father inviting his older son into the party, inviting him to humble himself and to enter into his father's joy. All right, so what does this parable have to do with happiness? Um, Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, which is a a meditation on this parable, says this. 
He says that Jesus is using the younger and the elder brothers to show us the two basic ways that humans try to find fulfillment and happiness. Um, one is the older brothers, which is the, the path of measuring up, and the others are the younger brothers, which is the path of self-discovery. And each of these acts as a lens for us in the way that we see all of life. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth, of addressing what's right, what's wrong with the world, of determining right from wrong. And the elder brother in the parable represents measuring up. So the Pharisees of the day, the, the religious leaders, they believed that they were God's chosen people, but they could only maintain this status with God, only maintain God's blessing and receive salvation through their strict obedience to the Bible. Now, this is a traditional view of how to attain happiness. In this view, happiness is attained by being good. It's about measuring up. Right? You might fall at times, you might fail, but then if this is your view, you then judge yourself by how intense your regret is. Right? Even in your failures, you have to measure up. And the younger brother in this parable illustrates the way of self-discovery. And this paradigm says that people must be free from convention to pursue their own goals and their self-actualization. In this view, the world would be a far better place if all barriers to personal freedom would be removed. The person in the way of measuring up says, I'm not going to do what I want, but what's expected of me, and that's where I'll find happiness. And then the person choosing the way of self-discovery says, I'm the only one who can decide what is right or wrong for me. I'm going to live as I want to live and find my true self and happiness this way. Um, We see this in the Avengers, right? Captain America, he's the older brother, does what is right. Iron Man, Rodney Stark, Um, Tony Stark, Tony Stark, screw authority. I'm going to do what I I think is right. So how does this parable illustrate what's wrong with these two approaches? Well, with the younger brother, it's a clear depiction of sin, right? We all see this. We know this guy is is doing something wrong. He humiliates his father. He goes on this self-indulgent bender that lasts just as long as his cash flow does. He's totally out of control. He's alienated from the father who represents God in the story. And anyone who lives like that would be cut off from God, as the listeners of the parable would have agreed. But at the end of the parable, the focus is on the elder brother. He is meticulously obedient to his father, and by analogy, to the commands of God. This guy is completely under control, completely self-disciplined. We are presented with two sons, one bad by conventional standards and one good, and yet both are alienated from God. Both are alienated from the father. How do we know that they're alienated? Because the father has to go out and invite each of them in. So there isn't just one lost son in this parable. There's actually two lost sons. And the parable ends with this unthinkable conclusion. Jesus, the storyteller, deliberately leaves the older brother outside of the party, alienated from the father. The bad son enters into the father's feast of love, but the good son will not. The lover of the prostitutes is saved. The good religious man is still lost. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as this story ends because it's a complete reversal of everything they've been taught. And Jesus doesn't leave it at that. It gets even more shocking. Because why doesn't the older brother go in? Look at the reason he gives in verse 29. Look at this with me. He says, I've never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's his pride and his ability to measure up. It's his pride and his own moral record. It's not his badness, but his goodness that is keeping him from sharing in his father's feast. 
So how does this work? Um, Well, what's going on is that the brothers' hearts and the two ways of life that they represent are so much more alike than they first appear. Because look at the younger brother. What did the younger brother want most in life? Or to ask this another way, where did the younger brother think that happiness was to be found? Where did he think that he'd get the contentment he longed for? Well, he didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with his family or his father's rules. He just wanted his money and his freedom to live how he wanted. He wanted to make his own decisions, have unfettered control of his own portion of the wealth. And how about the older brother? What did he most want in life? Where did he think that he would find happiness? Where did he think that he would get the contentment that he longed for? Well, reading this story, it looks like he wanted the same thing as the younger brother. It's just, he was just as resentful of his father as the younger brother. And looking at his interaction with his dad at the end, it's clear that he wanted his dad's things rather than the father himself. And the difference between the two of them is that while the younger brother went far away, the older brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get control. He was saying, I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do the things in my life the way that I want them to be done. And while their paths are different, the hearts of these two brothers were the same. Both of them resented their father's authority. Both had strategies to get out from under it. They wanted to get into a position where they could tell their dad what to do. And they thought that that's where real happiness was found. Out from their father's authority, being able to tell him what to do. And Jesus calls both of them lost. Each one rebelled. One did so by being very bad. The other did so by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. So do you see what Jesus is teaching here? Jesus is saying that neither son loved the father for himself, but he used the father to pursue happiness through his own self-centered means rather than loving or enjoying or serving his father for his own sake. What this means for us is that this means that you can rebel against God and be alienated him alienated from either by breaking his rules or by keeping them diligently. And so what we see is that Jesus is giving us a much deeper concept of sin than we could get on our own. Because most of us, when we think about sin, we think, oh, that's just not keeping God's rules. But here Jesus raises the bar. What Jesus is showing us is that sin is when God calls us to say to him, thy will be done, we respond by saying, my will be done. We say, I will have happiness on my terms, whether that's through self-discovery or that's through me trying to measure up. Either way, when it's done apart from God and it's done on our own terms, it's sin. And Jesus is showing us that this will not satisfy you. It will either leave you hungry and longing in the pigsty of your own self-discovery or to leave you angry and entitled in the fields of your own self-righteous religious moralism. So the question then is, how do we get joy? Well, think, for me, think with me for a moment about how you're searching for happiness. How is it that you go about looking for happiness or contentment? Now, for most of us, we're a blend between the two brothers. Um, we say, my will be done through, through obedience, through trying to measure up. Um, right, y'all feel this here, through, through trying to measure up or through, um, through pursuing freedom. Obedience, like the older brother, right? this is looking for the right life hack, trying to fix this or tweak that, have a better schedule, um, have a fuller resume. We also do it religiously. You know, maybe you think, maybe I'll be more happy if I go to RUF this week or if I'm a better person or if I obey better. Um, and we also do this through pursuing freedom, like the younger brother, doing things, doing things my way. 
It could be for you, this is um, living for the weekend. You can't wait to go out and drink to forget, right? The party ends when either you black out or the sun comes up. Or it could be that you define morality and identity the way that you choose, without reference to God's clear commands in Scripture. And Jesus is saying is both of these are just two ways of being lost. That whether your life looks stained and broken or squeaky clean and put together, apart from the Father, you are lost. So where does Jesus say that true joy comes from? This parable says true joy comes from being found by your Father in heaven. True joy comes from being found by your Father in heaven. The younger son is miserable in a far-off country, squandered his inheritance. He's too poor to eat the pig slop that he's feeding these dirty pigs. He comes to his senses. He realizes his dad is a good man. If he's humble enough, his father... Um, might hire him to be a servant, and he can eat well in his father's house and spend the rest of his life working off his debt. And that's what he says in this prayer in verse 18. He says, I'm going to tell my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he gets up and he goes home. And then look at the father. What does the father do? His dad isn't waiting in his study for his son to come home. He's not cracking his knuckles, waiting to punish his son. He's out looking for his son. Every day, going to the hill, looking, scanning the horizon, wondering, is my son coming home today? And when his son crests the horizon, his father sees him. We're told his heart swells with compassion. And he runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He tells his servant to bring the best robe and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And he throws a party for the entire village full of food and music and dancing. So why does Jesus tell the story this way? Because he wants you to see two things with absolute clarity. First, he wants to show you just how self-destructive and and empty our individual attempts at happiness are. And second, he wants to show us how God responds to you when you come home. Now, in ancient Near Eastern villages where this father and the sons would have lived, um, would have been built in a way that was different than farming communities are built today. They would have, the houses all of them would, would have been very close together, and then the farms would have shot out for the back of the houses. Which means if the houses are very close together, when the son left, it would have been public. The shame that he would have brought on his father when he left would have been very public. And when he came back, he would knew that he would be entering back into that public shame. But what we see the father do here is that he takes the shame onto himself. The father runs, which men did not do in the ancient Near East. He picks up his robes and he runs to the father, drawing the eyes of the village to him so that as he embraces his son, he takes the very shame that his son knew that he deserved to bear. The father takes it onto himself. Look at the father's response to the younger son. This is how God responds to you when you repent and come home from disobedience. He runs to you, and he takes your, your shame into himself. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. You cannot out God's grace. There is nothing that you have done that he cannot forgive, and nothing that has been done to you that he cannot heal. And how do I know this? Well, look at the cross. On the cross, God is showing his great love for you, that God has run to you in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. When we know that we deserve to be condemned for what we've done or what's been done to us, God says his response to you is like a father running to meet 
his son, so that he might wrap you up in his arms and bring you to a feast. Um, you might know this Mumford and Song, Son song. They say this. They say, it seems to me that all my bridges have been burned, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome that I receive with, with every start. What might it look like if you believe this? What might your life look like if you believe this to be true? Now look at the older son and the father's response to him. This is how God responds to your measuring up, to your religious obedience. He comes out to you and asks you, are you willing to humble yourself and enter into my feast and enter into my joy? Um, When I was in college, um, I was on a pendulum between these two extremes. I went to Tulane University in New Orleans, and I had this repeating pattern of parties and hangovers. And, and while there were stories and laughs, there, was, there really was no real happiness there, just this, this continually growing ache for joy. I mean, I'd have a really bad night, a really good night, really bad night, um, wake up, resolve to never do it again, and then have a season, the pendulum would swing, and I'd have this season of self-righteous obedience. I remember the fall of my junior year, I was... Um, in the, one of these seasons of self-righteous obedience, and I was on the front porch of my fraternity house holding a Bible, like trying to convince guys that this was important and they need to think about it. I remember one guy was like, John, what are you doing? Like, it was just so obvious to them that I was just swinging back and forth. Um, joy was elusive to me. And I lived on this roller coaster for the first three years of college. And then my senior year, uh, which was the fall of 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, and Tulane was underwater. Um, the school shut down, and I went home to Virginia and enrolled in UVA for the semester. And at UVA, I found myself in a Christian community for the first time um, in college. And it was in that community, in the community of a, of a campus ministry, um, that I, w- I started confessing my sin. I had this community of people who loved me, and they told me he- they loved me, and I started testing it out. I started confessing my sin. I started being honest with other guys about what I'd done. Um, started being honest about what I thought, what I felt. Um, and again and again, I was met with God's grace. Again and again, I was met with God's forgiveness and grace. And so I started confessing more and more and being met with more and more grace. Um, and this transformed me. I started to believe the gospel. I actually started to believe um, what we're talking about tonight. And, and this, this worked its way deep into my bones. And I came to see and believe that real joy, the joy that I longed for, was found um, not through my, my self-discovery, found not through my measuring up, but found through um, the, my Father in heaven, his embrace. Um, his embrace that he came to me in, in Christ. That Jesus was punished on the cross for me so that I could enter into the Father's embrace. That on the cross, he took not only my sin onto himself, but the wrath it deserved because of my wickedness. And he did this because he loves me. And the joy that we long for is found by coming into his embrace through faith in Jesus and the work that he's done for us. Friends, the joy that you long for will come through the knowledge of the gospel. God's free grace for you in Christ. Rather than saying to yourself, which we do over and over again, if I do blank, then I'll be happy. Um, The truth is that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. The truth is that you are never too good to be on the need of God's grace and you are never too bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. 
The truth is that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but in Christ you are more loved than you ever dare hoped. Friends, the joy that we long for is found with our Father in heaven by entering into his feast where he is celebrating with his children who are lost and are now found, um, who are dead but are now alive. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this parable. Um, Jesus, thank you that you spoke to us in story.